you were given handouts. <clears throat> Again, for some of you, some of you for the first time. Let me quickly run through what we covered. It's been a few weeks, I guess, since we've met. Um, going through just these different views of eschatology, different views of the end times. And you had your list of important words to know. We have the millennium, which we mentioned, um, usually referred to as the thousand-year reign. Um, in that, there's these different views, premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial. Last time we met, we covered two of those four. We covered uh, dispensational premillennialism, and then we covered historic premillennialism. And tonight I hope to cover amillennialism and postmillennialism, but there's a chance we'll only get through one of those because you will probably have a lot of questions, that would be my guess, or, and or objections to um, some of the things mentioned there. Uh, we heard the term preterism, which means that you basically, if you're a full preterist, meaning you, you believe all of uh, preterism, that means you think that everything has been fulfilled already in the past. And including Christ's return, if you are a full preterist, which I would then say that's heresy, and so thus we would not affirm that. But the fact that you think some things have been fulfilled already in history. Um, rapture, many of you are familiar with that term, coming out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in particular. It's the idea that uh, those who are followers of Jesus get called up to him. And part of what we talked about was there's views on when does that happen. There, some would say, especially the dispensational premillennialists, would say that that happens before the tribulation, the seven years tribulation, or midway through the tribulation generally. Uh, in the historical premillennialists, a lot of them would say that that's, that either they don't affirm a tribulation in that way, or it might be after those seven years that um, Christians are called up. Um, so some say that there's this kind of first coming, if you will, of Jesus, where he invisibly kind of comes and calls up the church, and then a second coming or a second event when he actually returns. And so they would say that those are two separate events, the rapture and his return as two separate events. The other camps are going to say the rapture and his return are happening at one event. And that's what we'll get into uh, tonight a little bit. Um, let's see, second coming's clear, great tribulation. Yeah, all, that's, all those important words should be good. Uh, a couple other notes just on the dispensational premillennialism. Some of the things they emphasize in that camp is that the nation of Israel is very much separate from the Christian church, a different group. Extremists would say that even uh, the way of salvation is not the same, that the Jews have their own way of salvation and everybody else has to go through Christ. We would reject that extreme, for sure, of dispensational premillennialism. And what I said is the, the way you end up in some of these camps is dependent upon what lens you read Scripture with, things that you already have been taught in the past. And so... The way it works generally is there is um, God's work in the Old Testament, the time of Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, the book of Acts starts, and now we're in the church age. Right now would be the church age from their perspective. And that can happen for 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 years. And then the rapture, seven-year tribulation, then Jesus comes, thousand-year reign, and then... Uh, Satan comes up and Christ cuts him down and then the final judgment. And so the, the, there are some strengths with this view. You can go into the scriptures and see some of the scriptures which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Very, very literal. At least they say they have a literal interpretation of the Bible is the kind of what they focus on. And part of what they would, they would say is, um, part of the weakness, I guess, of what would be said is that this has not been a popular view until the 1800s. And so that would be a weakness of the view that uh, Christians that we know of throughout church history have not held to this view. Um, Which one are we in right now? That's the dispensational premillennialism. So again, Left Behind series. If, you, if you're familiar with the Left Behind series, if you follow um, David Jeremiah, perhaps, that would be very consistent with his teachings. The one that we covered after that was the historic premillennialism. And that's the one that's, that's going to be different in some ways from the, the dispensational premillennialism. And that one is tied all the way back to the early church. Um, many theologians today hold to it and have throughout church history. They're going to believe, um, again, that society gets evil, continue gets evil. There's the great tribulation, and then Jesus comes back. And they would not necessarily say that there's a rapture before the tribulation. That would be more that um, we're here through the tribulation and then Christ returns. And that's going to be a kind of a big difference there. 
They do see some difference in Israel in the church, but not a lot of difference. They would look at them as more a combined God's people, whereas the dispensational is going to have a very separate view of Israel and the church. Okay, So those were the two that we covered last time. Any questions? Yes. Okay. And you said, when you were saying the town, where you came down, you said you came down more on the covenantal terrorists. The way I interpreted Yeah, that day I did, yes. That's when you said you came down. <laughs> <laughs> that day, yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And that's going to be linked more with the all millennial that we'll talk about today. Um, again, all of these are. You are considered a Christian follower of Christ if you hold to all of these. If you're extreme on some of these, I would say you're getting outside of that camp of of orthodoxy. Most of certainly Southern Baptists who have been influenced by perhaps, again, David Jeremiah or Schofield Study Bible, things of that nature, um, most of you would have just been um, taught or exposed to dispensational premillennialism. Um, our Presbyterian friends would not hold to that at all. <laughs> they would be more all-millennial, maybe historical, uh, historic pre-millennial. Um, that they, they would just, that's, and that's, again, why I want to cover some of these things, because we are getting other people who are coming in. And so when somebody makes a statement like, well, I sure can't wait till the rapture comes and takes us away from the tribulation, most of you are like, amen, I sure hope so. And then somebody else is like, what are they talking about? Why would they, why would they say that? We're not going to be out of the, the tribulation. And so... And then if you hear somebody else say, oh man, it's going to get rough during the tribulation, but we'll still be here and Christ will be with us. And then some of you are like, I'm not going to be here, I'm leaving. <laughs> well, that's why I want to make sure you're familiar with these different views. Yeah, good question. Any other? I have just a quick question. This is all uh, Protestant orthodoxy, right? Yes, although the Catholic Church would hold, to, would hold stronger to one of these two views we'll cover tonight. Yeah. Because really, in just Christianity, you, you, in, in essence, if you believe Jesus is coming back and you know anything about a thousand-year reign, which Catholics would, you do have to kind of fall in one of these camps. No, I agree. Yeah. I, just, we were talking about, I, I just noticed that they even have their Easter. Like, yeah. On, yeah, they have different calendars and things of that nature. Yeah, certainly. But they would, they would fall into one of these camps, which we'll get to tonight. All right. So let's start with, oof. I guess we'll start with all millennialism. So go ahead and pull that one out. Um, and so if you studied this at all, or you look at that word, the ah there, kind of from being taken from Latin, as some would say is going against a millennium, meaning that they don't believe that there is one. That's not probably the most accurate view. It's just that they're defining it differently. They're saying no literal thousand years exactly. They're going to take it more symbolically. So let's read through our thing, and I'll try to answer questions or explain things as we go through. Uh, somebody start on that amillennialism. What is amillennialism? And again, any hard words, big words, just say them quickly and confidently. Nobody knows the difference. Perfect. Keep going. The millennium and the spiritual reign of Jesus in the hearts of his followers. The first resurrection in Revelation 20, uh, verse 5, is not a physical restoration from the dead. It is a spiritual resurrection that is not a regeneration. Christ triumphed over Satan through his death and resurrection in AD 30, restrained the power of Satan on the earth. Revelation 21-3. Persecution of Christians, tribulation will occur until Jesus comes again and the, the expansion of God's kingdom in the millennium. When Christ returns, he will immediately defeat the power of evil, resurrect the saved and unsaved, judge them, and deliver them to their eternal death. Good. Thank you, Mr. Phil. All right. So well, twice in this in the paragraph, they mentioned Revelation 20. We read that once before, but let's open it up again. Um, so Revelation chapter 20. And I just want to read through that text since that's what he's referring to. And I know some of you have memorized Revelation chapter 20, and so that's great. But for the rest of, the rest of us who have not memorized it, we should go and just read over it. Revelation chapter 20. Turn there. Good. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. 
And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So something that's clear is who's the, the dragon, the ancient serpent? Well, that's Satan. That explains it in the text, right? There's this angel who comes down with the key, this bottomless pit, and then bound him for, what's it say? A thousand years. So those who are going to take a, a dispensational view are like, hello, says thousand years. Why would you interpret it any other way? We're, they literally are saying, we literally interpret this that way. Um, even for some of the historical, uh, historic premillennials. Um, and even some of these other camps will still possibly do that too. They can, the, the literalness of the thousand years can be in any camp. How, if it's actually a thousand years or just a, a span of a long time, really any camp can have that. The dispensational, they kind of all hold to that pretty much. And the other camps, there may be some negotiation on that part. Um, let's see. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Okay? So there's the thousand years, which again is either that literal reign or it's this kind of long time, but he's going to be put in this pit. So the question is, or in the debate or discussion is, is there a literal pit is Satan literally put inside, and does he no longer able to do any work whatsoever? So those who hold to the thousand-year reign of peace on earth are saying it's during that time that he's put into the pit, and so there's no more trouble in that sense going on from Satan because he's locked in. Okay, that's, that's, that's the, the, the thinking. On the other side, as we're going to see as we work through this, is others are saying that he's in the pit, but specifically, notice what the text says, specifically, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Doesn't mean, according to that view, that he can't do anything. It means that now the nations can come to faith, is what they're saying, because he's not blinded their eyes any longer. They can now respond to the gospel, which will explain a little more of this, this view as we, we go into it. Um, then I saw throne, verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for, again, a thousand years, reigning with Christ. <clears throat> the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. That's the don't forget that phrasing right there. This is the first resurrection, they're saying. Um, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then Satan pops up and is defeated. Okay, that's the thousand years. And really, this is the only place in the whole Bible that it's talked about. And so it'd be really nice if there were a whole bunch of other scriptures about the thousand years that would help us. This is really the only place that it's uh, mentioned. And so that's where a lot of this debate is being brought up around. So, back into our all-millennial pamphlet as we go through it. <clears throat> that phrasing, if you notice when we said, what is all-millennialism? What they're saying, this group, is saying that this is not talking about a literal, earthly, physical reign of Christ. What they're going to interpret, they're going to say that this is a spiritual reign of Christ that's happening right now. So you might look around and go, well, it looks like there's a lot of evil. I'm not really sure that that, that makes sense. Well, their point is not that the physical part of the world is going to get better. In fact, it's going to get worse. But that spiritually he is ruling and reigning right now on his throne in heaven and the kingdom is the church, basically. And his reign is happening now. He sat down at the right hand of the Father and he's reigning right now. For them, the thousand years is not literal. It is just meaning a long period of time. And he's just reigning. That's their, their perspective. Isn't that where the lion is supposed to lay down the lamb? The lion and the lamb? During that thousand years. Yeah, well, according to what we read, it's not mentioned there, but if you're going back and pulling out of Isaiah or other Old Testament passages, you're going, okay, well, when, when is that happening? Because it... Because it doesn't look like lions and lambs are laying down right now. So when is that? Is that in that thousand years that that's going to happen? Or is it in the new heavens and new earth that's coming? This camp is going to say it's when the new heavens and the new earth comes. Um, that's when he is. The other camp is going to say it's during the thousand year reign that that takes place. And maybe also in the new heavens and new earth. So, 
Um, this group is going to also um, say that, that that phrasing, that first resurrection, when it says that, it's talking about um, regeneration. It's when you become a Christian. So since the, for them, this thousand-year reign is happening now, every time somebody comes to faith, they're saying that's the first resurrection. That is when you have been resurrected to life. That's when you become a believer. And so that's why it says the second death will not hurt them, meaning not this physical death, but the judgment to come will not hurt anyone who is part of the first resurrection, meaning those who have given their life to Christ is what they're arguing here. Um, when Christ returns, he will immediately defeat the powers of evil. So when he comes back, so again, this is happening now. Physically, the earth is going to crap. <laughs> it's just going bad. Christ is reigning. The church is being built. Satan is bound, so thus the nations can come to faith. And it's going to continue like that until Jesus returns. And when he returns in that moment, he defeats the powers of evil um, and re- resurrects the, both the saved and the unsaved and then delivers them to their eternal destinies. So that's what they're saying there. And Satan is bound now. Bound now from deceiving the nations, meaning hiding their eyes from the gospel not from causing problems among believers or anyone else. That's why they're arguing in that text in Revelation where it says he's bound and thrown in the bottomless pit so he may no longer deceive the nations. They're saying that it's so that now the gospel can go out to the nations. Whereas the others who are saying there's going to be that thousand year reign, there's going to be nothing but peace. He's not even around during that time is what the other camp would be saying. Yeah, perfect. And I mean, Jesus' parables, especially one about the farmer and the, the enemy in the night, doesn't sound like he really has to be here. He's planted the seed. And the evil seed grows up with the just. You can't take it apart without killing both of them. So, I like we're going to live with it, whether he's in a pit or not. Somewhat. That there will be evil and sin no, no matter what. Yeah. Some of it. Yeah. And so, part of like with the millennial reign. Um, there is this uprising that seems to happen towards the end of it, and that's going to be that, that idea that there's still going to be evil, even though it's not Satan, but it's mankind's fallenness, it's our own sin, and things of that nature. So they, the one group is saying that, that that's coming, that, that, that binding of Satan. This group is saying, no, he's bound. That's why the gospel can go to the nations, and it didn't before. Starting at Jesus' death and resurrection, that's when Satan was bound. So then Acts the gospel starts going out to the nations and is still going out today, is what they would argue. Um, let's see. Yeah, so what do they emphasize? Many amillennialists believe that the book of Revelation consists, now this is interesting, this is again, goes back to the lens you read scripture with, seven sections, and instead of dealing with successive time periods, these seven sections use apocalyptic language to describe the entire time from Jesus' first coming until his second coming in seven different ways. Now that is a very different understanding than what many of you would have been exposed to. Many of you got the book of Revelation, somebody's, you know, if you taught it, David Jeremiah, whatever it is, whoever you've heard teach it, they open it up, and generally what they do is they say, okay, chapter one is a greeting, chapter two, chapters two and three are letters to the seven churches, and then everything shifts to the future at that point. And, that has, and the rest really hasn't happened yet. The rest is coming. Okay, so chapters 1 through 3 happened and were happening at the time he wrote it. Chapters 4 till the end are coming in the future and are future to them in the, at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation and still in the future to us as well. Does that make sense? Kind of? So that's what most of you would have been taught. That, and, and as you go through chapter by chapter by chapter... It is the next sequence event. This is going to happen, then this happens, then this happens, and so on and so forth. That's how they're reading the book of Revelation. This group is saying that's not what's going on there. This group is saying that the book of Revelation is covering from when Jesus left to when he's going to return, and it's describing this time that we live in over and over and over again with kind of different emphases throughout the book of Revelation. And so what they're saying is there's these cycles of seven, which I'm just going to show you the argument. Seven, do you remember what that means? Completeness, right? So the completeness of what's going to happen during this church age, during this time, is being explained in the book of Revelation. So not a sequential thing, but a repeating and giving kind of 
ramping up the intensity as it explains it moving forward, is what they're saying. That's how they're reading the book of Revelation. So really, if you go in and you say, well, I read it this way, well, then you're going to end up in this camp because that's how you're reading the book. If you're saying, I'm going to read it this way, well, then you're going to end up in this camp. That, so that's why it goes back to the lens that you're reading it with is what's going to put you in really a camp. Okay? Questions about that? Yes? This seems like an all possible that we kind of stake our beliefs on. In the past, has occurred on a certain timeline and a certain literal way. None of the prophets have been symbolic until we get to here, it seems like. Say that again? I don't know if I was tracking with you. Like, you know, all the prophets in the past have been a literal time, a place, and they happen just as it was said in Scripture. Okay. In that timeline. Okay. It seem like this group is switching, oh, it's all symbols. Right. And nothing's literal. Right. So I would say that if you go back to the way you know, those prophecies that you're mentioning before, um, I would say that probably some of them would even have some symbolic meanings with even those prophecies, um, trying to stay consistent. But when you get to prophecies, for example, like about Jesus, they've been Bethlehem and you know the Lion from the tribe of Judah and clear. Their argument back, I think, would be those prophecies were not written in apocalyptic literature. Some were. But the ones that are written in apocalyptic literature, they're going to say are symbolic. The ones that are written straightforward in, in narrative and other things, those you can take literally. So what's driving their interpretation, and again, how you read the Bible, is this apocalyptic literature that is different. It's not something you should take as just straightforward or that you should take as sequential because of the genre of, of what it is. That's why they would say that those prophecies are symbolic because it's in a literature that's symbolic versus Genesis narratives that are straightforward. And so when, they're, when they say this will happen, you can say, okay, that's what's going to happen because of the genre, as I think what they, what the argument would be. Mr. Dudley, or Robert. If it were literal, wouldn't there be groups of people out there to preempt it or bring it about? Uh, what do you mean? I mean, that that's why it's purposely vague. Yes, I do think that in general... Stuff about the end times is vague in Scripture, so that we're not trying to figure out exactly when He's coming and what He's doing and what we should be doing. We should just be faithful until He comes. So yes, that would, yeah, yeah. And that's what happens. Again, we talked about the extremes. Some in these camps, the extremes, they get out their charts and they start trying to figure out the exact date, and and then they actually put forward an exact date, which you guys have talked about earlier. Or like uh, that preacher you brought up and said, it's going to happen in this generation. You know, he was he was confident on that, and so everyone would have heard that. And What's that? It didn't, it didn't happen. Well, I guess that generation's kind of still here. Right here. So, and what's interesting is, as more people that I meet that that generation is kind of still here, that because they've been taught that, and maybe they're, maybe it's right, but because they've been taught that, they're very certain he's coming real soon because that generation is starting to die out and there's some left, maybe a few more years of that generation. And so they're like, he's coming any day. He's coming any day. And the, well, yeah, Paul did. That is what's interesting. Part of this discussion is when you read Paul or John, you read them. Did they seem to think that he could come? And so, however you're interpreting it, you need to make sure that you take into account that they seem to think he could come pretty quickly, um, and I even wanted him to. Now. Then the question is, well, how are they interpreting it that we also would be interpreting it the same way, um, especially when you, we, you put in the accounts of the destruction of the temple? Because depending on how many things you say have to happen before Jesus comes back, um, then that's delaying, if you will, or putting uh, parameters on when he could come back. So that's why one of the things I asked you guys the first night was, how many of you think Jesus come back at any moment? And some of you are like, yes. And then you're like, wait, wait, no, wait, maybe. <laughs> and the reason you're doing that is because you read some texts and it's like, he can come back any minute. And you read other texts, and it has this feeling of, well, no, these things need to happen first. They're signs. And that's the confusing part of it. Yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah. And honestly, so, okay, so you ready? So, so you, you brought it up. I didn't. Okay. <laughs> Some would argue that the reason that that has not come up until the 1800s um, was because they were actually trying to answer this question. And so what you end up having to do, here's what you have to do. That there's tension, no matter which camp you're in, of could he come back at any moment, yes or no? Are there signs that must happen before he comes, yes or no? And 
as you work through that, when you get to these to these texts, some would argue that's where this idea of a rapture at any moment was created, was trying to fix that. The problem was they would argue there's not a lot of biblical support for it, but it helps us figure out this tension that seems to exist. And so it came about in the 1800s because that's when somebody finally thought of a way to do that. Not that it had been taught or believed throughout church history, is what they would say. But yeah, rapture could happen at any moment. So then you don't need to worry about signs or anything else. Um, then you have, you have the thousand years, or the tribulation, thousand years is returning, all those things. And so um, fits, in one sense, it fits nicely, um, which may be right. And that's why <laughs> people hold to it. Yeah. Right. And he describes them the best, yeah. The best that he can. Yeah. And this is he's describing the modern age that we live in. Right. And the you know, the angel flying overhead and all of that kind yeah. of stuff. You know, it describes some of the machines that we have. Right. Now. Right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Which now that we have those machines, then oh, this is really helpful. Um, Christians for eighteen hundred years that means this text would have not been anything for them. They wouldn't have need to have been looking for his return or anything like that would be the argument. Because we have these things, we understand it more. Right, that's what, yeah. That's what I've always That's what you've been told, yeah. I, my, my, I guess my pushback on, on that would be if, if it's contingent on um, technology getting to where it was, I don't understand... I, personally, I'm, just, I'm telling you my own story. I, I struggle. I don't have this fear. I struggle with this stuff too. Where I struggle with that is Christians throughout history. There was no need for them to be, expect Jesus is coming. They should not have been expecting his return if it was going to be contingent on technology being where it's at today, because of that span when none of those things existed for all that time. If it's a microchip, if the mark of the beast is a microchip, which that's you know, or a credit card or a phone, whatever you you know, different people say. If it's that, then there was no concern. None of that would have even been close to happening for all that time as Christians. So they just would have been reading the book of Revelation and, and it would have mattered. you can also say there's still stuff in here that we don't... We have no idea what's going on. Right, yeah. I mean, you say you don't understand it. Yeah, I don't fully. I know, certainly don't. So, yeah, yeah. And so that question, kind of like the beast in Daniel, right? When, we, when you go through some of those things... What's he describing there? And it's certainly they're trying to do the best that they can to describe things. But how do you, these statues and things that you see, like what's going on? And that goes back to the apocalyptic literature and that it's trying to describe things to capture feeling and ideas, not specifically explaining what it's going to look like to a T. And John's trying to figure that out. It's more, they would say, it's more trying to describe the feeling that's being captured there, the fear, the terror, the Whatever, whatever else. But I was going, well, there's a lot of details for just to just talk about feeling, and so that's part of the debate. And you know, I don't even know. Uh, yeah, Mr. <laughs> Phil Parker. Phil Parker's got his notes back there, y'all. He's going back to the bed. Yeah. Deal as far as like the mark of the beast and all that. I mean, the, the technology came on so much Yeah. So, so, so the way you're interpreting Matthew 24 is where that's coming from. You're interpreting that through a particular lens, right? This gospel will be preached to the end of the earth, and then the end will come. Those who are going to be in the two camps that we're studying tonight, um, the one camp is going to say that the gospel was preached to the end of the earth already. And I can show you a couple other verses that kind of say that. And you go, what in the world? How does that work? What they were, what the argument is is what they were writing was to the ends of the earth meant the Roman world at that time. What the known world at that time. Not the people groups today in Africa, per se, is what they would argue. So they're going to say that that part of Matthew 24 has been fulfilled and thus he could come back any time. Now, what do we do with unreached people groups that are still here today? And that's, again, part where the other side goes, well, what about this? What about that? I just think that a lot of this could end up being a distraction. I think that if everybody, right. if everybody just... Uh, Right. Yeah, I think that it can certainly become a distraction. The other note is the book of Revelation is, is put in the Bible for us. 
So you're supposed to study it. In fact, you're blessed those who hear the reading of that book. So there's that tension of don't make it, don't let it be everything. But what was it for? Think just first century Christians. What what was John writing? Give them hope. They're being persecuted. And so he wants to give them hope. That would be certainly true. Help them to see what's going on. That Jesus wins. The the victory there, right? He's coming back. Um, John knew why he was writing it. I mean, it came to him in a vision. Right. He was told to write it. He was (laughs) definitely a revelation of Jesus Christ. I think there's many churches and teachers, they kind of, they teach the Bible everywhere you got revelations of this that other book. Right, well, I mean, even John Calvin, one of the greatest theologians we have, you know, whether you agree with all of his, his uh, you know, where he went on things, he's still considered by all, you know, pretty much one of the greatest theologians. He didn't even write a commentary on Revelation. <laughs> he said, I'm not even going there. Forget that. So, but there should be things we should be able to get out of it. So again, the point of what we're doing is I want you to understand when somebody stands up or somebody in a conversation says, I'm all millennial, I want you to understand what, roughly what they're saying. Not all the ins and outs. I want you to understand you don't need to run them out of here with a pitchfork. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, all these four views, in my opinion, you can go to hell on any of them. Yep, absolutely. You can. And that's the, and that's the, that's the point. And, but there are some churches, and there are certainly some Christians, that if you do not hold to their view, they would, they would say maybe you aren't going to heaven or that you shouldn't be in the same church. And I don't want that, and that's why we're trying to cover it. Are there certain denominations that would be true? And if you didn't believe one of these opinions, that you I don't know as far as a full denomination that we would consider a, gen, a real Christian denomination, but I would say that churches and individuals in those denominations, yes, I think that they would believe that and say that if you do not hold to this, then you're not, you're not being faithful to Scripture. If you don't hold the same view that I hold, or they hold. Yeah. So I don't, I don't want that, you know. Because even, we, you know, we had a conversation a couple weeks ago, and I said, would it be a big deal to some of you if... Uh, somebody held that the rapture didn't come before the tribulation. And we had a few in here who got very adamant that it would be a huge deal to them, right? Well, there's people in our church who don't hold to that. <laughs> and so how big of a deal is it? En- enough for there to be disunity? Enough to, to, to not be able to, to take the Lord's Supper together? Enough to, you know, how big of a deal is that? And so I want to make sure that we at least see that they are trying to make an argument from Scripture. Whether or not you agree with the argument is actually another whole other thing. Go study it on your own, I don't, you know. But that they're trying to make an argument from Scripture. So, again, how they're reading Revelation is not sequential. So it's this kind of repeating cycle of explaining how things are, are right now. With If you were to put on, the best way to look at it, I think, is if you were to put on spiritual glasses, this is how you would see the world. Through... That, that Christ is reigning, and even though it looks like uh, he's not reigning at times here on this earth, he still is, but the, and everything is moving towards what he says it will. But on this earth, physically, it's, the wor- world is going to get worse and worse. Are they de- defining the seven sections? They have them broken up, yeah. If you listen to somebody who preaches through it, um, they, they go into those seven different sections, and they have them mapped out with how they divide up the book of Revelation and say this is saying the same thing this did. And their arguments, you know, some of the texts are pretty good. You know, a lot of language is similar. Sometimes you kind of feel like, hmm, that feels like a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> and so uh, I think every view seems to have those sections where, hmm, that feels a little bit like a stretch. Uh, but yeah, they define them for you. If you, if you. But that's the thing. If you pick up a book or a commentary and you don't know which camp they're in, you could read it. If you, know, if you know what you're looking for, you'll figure out pretty quickly where they are. But if you always read the same people... You always listen to the same guys who recommend this guy and that guy. They're all teaching the same exact thing. So, of course, you're going to be like, well, yeah, this is what I believe. And obviously, everybody does. And then you come to find out, well, wait a minute. I've got Christians in my own church who don't agree with that? Well, who are you reading? And, and that's why some of the names are there. Their list of people they're reading is generally different than the, the list of others. So I think it's really important to read one from every camp. See, see, see what they're saying. You know? the question of sovereignty. When is God's hand not at the helm? God's sovereignty, when is his hand not at the helm? Yeah, um, depending on what you mean by that, um, in one sense, his, his sovereign will, he's always on his throne and his hand, his hand there. Exactly. Yeah, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to end up as he says it is. <laughs> now, those choices in his permissive will, like we've talked about before, is, is here. But 
So they also tend to emphasize the historical context of the book of Revelation and what it meant to the first century readers. That goes back to exactly what Miss Beth was just talking about. They're going to say, what did this mean to the first century readers? And if it, if, it, if it means helicopters, then that cannot be true from their perspective. That cannot be true because they didn't have helicopters. So what did it mean for them at that time? Were they only supposed to read the first three chapters and then go, well, he'll take care of all at the end. Don't really need to read the rest. Was that the point is what they're going to argue. Um, and so they're, they're going to em- that's where they're going to emphasize. What did it mean to them as well? According to amillennialists, the Great Tribulation, watch this, represents disasters, wars, and persecutions that have occurred throughout church history. Let's see how well you guys are learning. What would the other camps say when the tribulation is coming? The other camps we read about already. After. And after there's going to be destructions and disasters and persecutions, right? So here's what this group's going to say. Disasters, wars, and persecutions. There are grenades going off in churches in Nigeria every week. They're going to say persecutions are happening now. Wars, any wars happening? They're going to say the wars are happening right now. Um, Other disasters, earthquakes, tsunamis, whatever, right? They're going to say this has been happening throughout church history. All that that's describing, remember how they view it, over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. It's just saying it's happening and it's probably just going to keep getting worse. Not this event that's coming, but it's happening now. Okay, that's what they're going to emphasize. Most references to Israel in the book of Revelation are symbolic references to the people of God on earth. And they tell you to go look at Romans 9 and Galatians 6.16. We looked at those before when we were studying the other texts. That's why I'm going to say that not everyone who's descended from Abraham is actually Israel, but all who have the faith of Abraham are in Israel. There's no Jew or Gentile, no male, female. So what they're arguing is when you see Israel mentioned in the book of Revelation, it means the church or it means believers. Remember the dispensational group, the premillennial dispensational premillennial? They're saying when it says Israel, it means the ethnic nation of Israel. That's a huge difference. Because if it's ethnic Israel then you better believe that you want to be on Israel's, the nation of Israel's side no matter what they're doing, right? You would want to be because God's going to bless them if you bless them and curse you, or bless you if you bless them and curse you if you curse them. Whereas for somebody who has this view, guess what? You get, and this is important, seriously. This is very important. When you're having a conversation over lunch and you're trying to say, we really need to support Israel, just a conversation about politics or whatever you're having, and you have another person from the church who's sitting there and goes, it's not that big of a deal. That can start a disagreement real quick. It's not a big deal. Why, why would they say it's not a big deal to help ethnic Israel? Because for them, ethnic Israel had its time up until really the book of Acts, and now the gospel's gone out to the Gentiles, Satan's bound. It's not that Israel isn't part of the nations, but they're just a part of the nations. There's nothing unique about them is what they're going to say. So when you're saying, we have got to support them, and we need to make sure that America is sending money or whatever else, if you have somebody else in the church who goes, I don't really think we need to be doing that. I want you to understand that the reasoning is, it's not that they're, they're hating Israel necessarily. They're just saying they don't see them as God's chosen people any longer. They're saying that has transferred to the church. Does that make sense? Do you have any questions about that? There are the- Right. Yeah. There's a lot of contradiction. Well, no, no, they have answers for that. Oh, Oh, absolutely. Now, whether or not you agree with their answer is different to the discussion, but they have answers for that. Yeah. You know, it's hard to see because we're all focused on all the stuff that they tell us is bad and the crises that happen over and over again. Sure. I can see that we've been here 200 years and Christianity has had more peace and more prosperity right here in the last 200 years than anywhere else in the world ever in history. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that fits into any one of these categories, but it's something we should be thankful for. Yeah, the, 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 the post-millennial group, whenever we get to them, they're going to they're gonna love what you said there. They're going to be like, yes, amen, that's a good thing, and I'll explain why. It's just the observational so, truth. So my point, though, is just be careful, because for some of you in here, 
you really want to support the nation of Israel. Is that, is that fair? Are there some of you that really feel it? Right? I mean, so, so my point is, when somebody else who comes into the church is saying, that's, you know, we should support, you know, any nation, not just Israel, what they're saying is, they're, 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 that is a theological belief that the church has replaced Israel. Well, that could be a big dividing factor. So they go to Romans 9, and they go to Galatians 6, and they read those verses that say that there's no more Jew or Greek. It's just one. And so they say, why are you trying to support an ethnic nation that, like from their perspective, like if you're like, hey, we need to support Israel, they're going to be like, what? Why would we do that? We're, we support them all. Or, you know, we either are against them all, or we support them all, however you want to say, we want to reach them all. Not just ethnic Israel. Israel is what they're going to say. But if you're interpreting it that this is still very much talking about ethnic Israel, well then, that could be a great example or possibility, opportunity for division in the church. But geographic Israel. Well, yeah, that's... Can go into that. And then you could say, well, this country has been extremely blessed for over 200 years. You could, right? So why not propose me? This is like, hey, ain't you going to answer, you know, you're, you're saying it? Well, that's because we've always been pro-Israel. <laughs> so we can say pro-Israel, right? If that's the thinking. Now, now the argument back is like, no, no, it's not that we've been pro-Israel. It's that we followed the principles of Scripture. That we found in all Scripture. And that's why God bless. You know, but, but uh, you know, we don't know, right? It goes, it goes around and around and around. But I do want you to know that because you will have conversations. Some of you had them already with some of our, some members of the church. And you have this conversation. All of a sudden you hear something and you go, whoa. And it's interesting what happens is bristle. What do you mean we're not supporting ethnic Israel? What, what, what do you mean? Like, And then especially, now here's the thing. Those of you who listened to the, the talk that I did on what is Reformed theology. Reformed theology, generally speaking, is going to view things not dispensational and cut up to where very clear Israel, very clear church. Reformed theology, it's covenantal. So it's saying those covenants, those the prophecies and covenants, were fulfilled in Christ, not the nation of Israel. They were to Christ. And so when they say that they're to Christ, guess who gets the, the blessings of those covenants? Everybody who's in Christ. So who's in Christ? Well, Jewish people are in Christ if they've trusted in him, and Christians are in Christ. So people who are reformed are going to hold to this way of thinking somehow. So when they come, if they assume, because we have an ESV Bible here, or because we talk about the sovereignty of God, or because whatever it is, and they go, I think this is a reformed... It doesn't say this on their website, but I think it might be, but I'm not really sure. It's funny. I, I don't know if so I've told some of you this, that there are people who come and they try to guess whether or not I'm reformed in things. They talk about it with their churches back home. Kurt and Peggy, how many of you know Kurt and Peggy? They're probably listening. Hi, Kurt and Peggy. You know, Kurt and Peggy, <laughs> they're going to listen to this. Kurt and Peggy, like, they came down in the Presbyterian. So guess what? They're going to be covenantal. They're going to see these things that way. And they came and they said, to whispering, do you think he's reformed? <laughs> he seems to be kind of, but I'm not sure. Like, what's going on? It's a weird church. And so they went back home, and they're like, "Hey, you got to tell their pastor and some of their church. You got to listen to this guy. He's a good preacher. We really, really like listening to him." And they're like, "And there's their question then before they ever listen to me. Here's their question: Well, is he reformed?" And they're like, "We don't know. <laughs> we think so, but we're not sure." And so then they try to listen, and then they're going to. You know where they're going to go? They're going to go to texts like Romans nine. And they're going to go. Let's listen to what he says about Romans nine. But one of the things I love to do is I just try to preach the Bible. And so sometimes there's things that I preach that people go, wait a minute, some of the reform camp would be very, very uncomfortable with. Guess what? I don't really care. Because it's what I see in the text. Okay? And that's what I want us to be, a church who just follows the Bible. The problem is you can have these different lenses <laughs> and see things differently. So this is, oh my gosh, where did our time go? Okay. Talking too much. <clears throat> so they're going to emphasize Israel... Church, every time you see Israel in the book of Revelation, we're talking about all of God's people, not just the nation of Israel. In apocalyptic literature, numbers represent concepts, not literal statistics from their view. For example, six symbolizes incompleteness. Seven represents completeness. Ten indicates something that is extreme but limited. 
12 represents the perfection of God's people, and 1,000 symbolizes a great amount or a long period of time. They're arguing that if you take a look at apocalyptic literature, the point is not to try to tell you exact numbers. So thus, for their perspective, the 1,000 years is not about an exact number. It's more about saying it's a long period of time. I thought that's what 40 days and 40 nights was. 40 days and 40 nights. That one seems to be pretty straightforward and literal. Why? So question about kind of what Robert just brought up. Why would somebody who's all millennial, who believes that these things should be interpreted symbolically, why or how could they hold to a literal 40 days and 40 nights? Noah, the temptation of Jesus. Right, right, right. But why, why, don't, they, why don't they say those are symbolic? Oh, they don't. They say those are literal. I thought that they were symbolic. <laughs> Robert, Robert, Robert's an all-millennial. <laughs> no, no, an all-millennial would say that those are literal. Why? Why would they say that's literal, but these are not? Because it was not an apocalyptic. That's what they're going to say. Next time. They're going to say, that was a narrative. It was telling you a story. This apocalyptic literature is not doing that. It's something different. Pre-millennial dispensationals are going to say, no, no, this is also literal. That's, you know, again, it's how you're interpreting is how you're ending up in these different places. Okay? <clears throat> so what scriptures seem to support this? Let's look at a few of these real quick. The Bible frequently uses a thousand figuratively. Let's see if that's true. Somebody look up Psalm 5010. Miss Debbie's got that. Somebody else look up uh, Psalm 90 verse 4. Uh, Miss Faye's going to take that one, please. Uh, somebody else, Psalm 105, 8. Cindy, would you take that one? And somebody else, 2 Peter 3, 8. Ed, would you take 2 Peter 3, 8? So Psalm 50, verse 10, Psalm 90, verse 4, Psalm 105, verse 8, 2 Peter 3, 8. Okay, Debbie, you got yours? Psalm 50, verse 10. Psalm 50, verse 10. Here we go. Let's see what they say. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean specifically a thousand hills, you think? Probably not, right? So that's that's one argument. They're going to say, look, thousands using the Bible. It's not meaning literal. That's part of what they're arguing. Next one. Who's got the next one? Mine. Go ahead. And this is Psalms 94. Yep. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. A thousand years in your sight is like a day that's gone by is the point of that psalm to show you that a thousand years is specifically one day or are they speaking saying... A long time is just like a day in your sight. Is, you know, the, the question is, is it you're trying to make a literal case for a thousand years, or is it saying, hey, even a thousand years is like one day in your sight? And they're going to argue that's what it's saying, right? Uh, Cindy, got the next one? He remembers his covenant forever, the words that he commands for a thousand generations. Okay, he remembers his covenant forever, and then a thousand generations. So after a thousand generations, would he forget it? No. The point is the forever part. It's just so saying a long time. Well, to bless Israel. Yeah, that he, that, yeah, they're right. The one camp is going to say, that's that covenant that he made with Israel and he remembers it forever, right? He doesn't forget it. That would be part of that there. Yeah, where's our second Peter one? Yeah, and then you're here. So this is going to be, should be according to this, second Peter, um, what do you have there, Ed? 3.8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Right? Peter's writing there, and he says there's a whole bunch of people, and they're coming, they're saying, Hey, where's the return of your Lord? I thought he was coming any minute. And Peter's addressing that. He goes, No, listen, listen. With the Lord, a thousand years is one day, one day is a thousand years. But the reason he's delayed is his kindness, so he would give us time to repent, is what it says. So there, is he really trying to say specifically, literally, one day to God equals a thousand years? Or is he saying kind of more generally, a day is a thousand years? For the Lord, the time is different. He sees it differently. What's the point of what he's saying? Is there argument? That's how we grow up in our churches. That's what we learn. Right. Our time is different. Right. Our time is different. So, now again, whether you agree with them or not, I'm not sure. I'm just, again, trying to show you. They're going to say, so when we get to a thousand years in apocalyptic literature, if, if in Psalms and in Peter it can mean a long time, then clearly in the book of Revelation it can mean a long time. It doesn't have to mean a thousand years. That's their argument. Okay? Uh, 
Make sense? Okay. Again, you may not agree with it, but I hope you make sense. The first, the second point on our thing, the first resurrection that we read about in Revelation 20, verse 4, could refer to the spiritual resurrection or the regeneration or new birth of a person who trusts in Christ. Um, let's get somebody, Romans 11, 13 through 15. Uh, Mr. Doug, can you find that one for us? Romans 11, 13 through 15, or Miss Barbara, whichever one of you has thing. And then Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. Uh, Miss Beth, do you have a thing on there? Good, Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. And either one of you, when you have. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you got to go. Uh, Romans 11 and 13. I am talking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation, reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be of life from the dead? Good. What will their acceptance be when they come to faith, life from the dead? Or they're arguing there that that's the, they're dead and they come to life. The first resurrection is what he, he, they're using that verse to argue for. Ms. Beth, what do you have in Ephesians 2? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience You once were dead, you've now been made to life. They're arguing that that's a resurrection. Which resurrection? They're arguing the first resurrection. So when you read Revelation 20, they're saying the first resurrection. Anybody who takes part in that is blessed. Oh, okay. I can at least see maybe where they're going with it. And that's what they're saying. Right, wrong, or indifferent. That's what they're saying. They're trying to argue for that first resurrection is regeneration, when we become Christians. That's what they're arguing. Because again, for them, Revelation 20 is happening now. And when the, every time it says the first resurrection, that's when people are coming to faith. So that's why they want to try to argue that. Reborn. What's that? We consider it reborn. Yeah, when you're born again. Well, no, when you're born again. When you, yeah, 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 right. Right, yeah, John, yeah. Uh, John, what, three? Or four? Um... The second come the next point they have the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the saved and unsaved will occur at the same time. The second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the saved and unsaved will occur at the same time. What is that in contrast to? What would the other views be saying about the second coming of Christ and when these things are happening? How is that different than the other groups? Ed? No rapture. Yeah, no rapture. Okay. No rapture. Now, where is that coming from? First Thessalonians chapter 4. The, the rapture passage. Like we studied in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. The dead will rise, and then those who are on the earth will be transformed in a, in a blink of an eye. Right? When you talk about the rapture, what are you talking about? Being transformed in a blink of the eye. There's not a question of whether the rapture happens. It absolutely happens. They're saying it's, it's not happening before tribulations. It's happening at the second coming. They're saying, and now why are they saying that? Well, here's, the, here's a couple of verses. Why? Let's look real quick at John 5, 28 through 29. Um, Miss Faith, since you have yours, I'll go and grab that if you would. And then, Debbie, you love Daniel. Daniel 12, 2 and 3. So now, when we get to J Daniel chapter 12, you all be listening closely. Ooh, where, where, how's he going to interpret that? What, what camp is he in? Miss Faye, you again have John 5, 28 and 29. Debbie, tw Daniel 12, 2 and 3. Go ahead. Okay. Yep. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. A time is coming. 
when they will hear his voice and they will be raised. And there seems to be judgment. Those who've done good and those who've done bad. Not some are raised and then a little while later the bad guys are, you know, those who are done. There's not a separation. What they're saying according to that verse. So if it's happening at the same time, then you can't have the raising of the rapture part is what they're arguing. Instead. And some of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Okay. Many will be arise at the same time according to that passage in Daniel. Those good, those bad. It's happening at the same moment. If it's happening at the same moment, then they're arguing there would be no rapture of a different one group and then the other group is what they're arguing. Okay. Right. If you believe, so say that again, if you believe the rapture comes before the tribulation, yes. All the saved people go to heaven. Go to heaven. But during the thousand years, there are people that come to Christ during that time. Correct, according to that. But so what this is saying is, if you believe the rapture happens before the thousand years, that's when that resurrection is happening. What they're arguing is the texts are saying that that's happening at the same moment when the bad ones, the, the non-believers, are too. But there's a gap. Yes. <laughs> You're going so, to have more saved people. Right, right. So, so your point is, no, there's a gap. And their point is, read those two texts. There's no gap in there. You're saying, no, there's a gap. You just don't see it in here. It's mentioned later, right? So that, that's the difference. Yeah. Here, yeah, you would be saying, no, no. There's a gap. These don't mention that gap. The gap is mentioned somewhere else. You need more pieces to the puzzle to understand it. And they're saying, no, this is the same both at the same time. That's, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's the essence of the disagreement. <laughs> they're there. How are you reading it? Yeah, Robert. Um, the great multitude stood before the throne, and the angel asked John, who are these? And he said he didn't know. He said, these are those that have come through great tribulation. Mm-hmm. Been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Those are people that are going to be brought to Christ after the rapture? Depends on your view. Yeah. It's just one of those. Yeah, one of those. Which, are, those that, are those that happened at the rapture, or are those at the, after the end, and everyone's there, and then there's this group and that group? I mean, that's just... At what point during... On millennialism—is—is—Christ—rule—the-rod-of-iron—so-so-be-nothing-new-in-the-new-heavens-and-new-earth—correct—yeah—he-doesn't—he—that—he-just-throw-that-part-out—no—I think they—I think they would say that—I
Well, it's somebody bad. We'll just say it's certainly somebody bad. You know, whether it's a particular person or it's a, a manifestation of Satan, whatever it is, it's somebody that's bad, and you're supposed to bow down to the beast, right? right. And so it's. Uh, Are you in thirteen? Yes. Read thirteen. Go ahead. Also, it was allowed. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Right. Authority was given it over every tribe and people and language. There's a beast, and authority is given to that beast over every tribe, tongue, and nation. He makes war on the saints. So they're arguing, if this is in the middle of the tribulation, the saints are there being hindered, so thus the saints go through the tribulation, is what they're arguing. Those who would hold to the, the rapture taking place, so let's say you guys all are raptured, and I didn't really believe, and I'm still here, right? <gasps> I, I, I didn't really believe. I, I, I preach, you know, there's even in the Left Behind movie, I preach the, your word, and I did this, and I did that, but I didn't really believe, and all of you are gone now, and so at that moment, I come to faith. This camp is going to say, well, what's happening in Revelation 13 is those people who were left behind who finally came to faith because they realized what they had missed. Whereas this camp is saying, it's, that's just speaking about the Christians that are just in the tribulation. They don't, some didn't leave, they were just there. That's what they're doing. This doesn't say that he's bound now, then, at, in this verse, on account of he's given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. This is and the beast. This is not, there's a difference between Satan and the beast. Right. They would, that, sure, I'm sure the argument back is going to be Satan himself is bound to deceive the nations, but the beast of, and the false prophet, that unholy trinity that exists, that's not Satan speaking about. So he's, a, he's allowed to make war. Yeah. Another bad thing, Another bad thing. <laughs> that, that somehow takes things. Ed? Well, you talk about if we're going to be here in the millennium, if you go down a little bit farther, 10, it says, uh, or 9, it goes, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to, cap- to captivity he goes. And if anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here's the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. During the millennium. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, does that mean we're going to be here? I mean, sounds like. So, the millennials, we are here. They're saying we are here because it's happening now. The, those who say it's coming come back with him and reign with him. So, they would say, yeah, so both are there. So, both would say that they're there, just one's happening physically, one's happening spiritually. One's happening physically. That's what it seems, doesn't it? So then, you guess what, Ed? You're probably in that camp. <laughs> so last thing we'll say, we'll close, guys. Uh, when was this popular? Amillennialism became popular in the 5th century, um, has remained widespread throughout church history. So in comparison to the, the first one, uh, dispensational premillennialism, which didn't seem to appear until the 1800s, this one is throughout church history, just like the historical premillennial has been throughout church history, um, or at least 5th century, um, which... Um, some would say was maybe Augustine. Some people you may have heard of if you look through this list, uh, J.I. Packer, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Abraham Kuyper, I don't know, a few others there. Um, and some argue that uh, Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you like to say his name, was also a premillennialist. But again, they, weren't, they didn't have those terms at that time. So you have to read their writings and try to figure out where they landed on stuff. And so just so you know, that's really hard to do. So. Um, well, no, I mean, that's uh, because, I mean, all Presbyterians are just about going to be in that camp. And so... Well, the question would be, like, what do, what do... Yeah, so the members of the church, what do they actually believe and understand themselves versus what the standard doctrine that the Presbyterians hold to teaches? Kind of like Catholics, right? Catholics, not every Catholic understands what the Catholic faith teaches. Well, that's the issue. Right. Well, that is the issue. But, yeah. Right. Right, right. And so that might be that they didn't know. So, that's all millennialism in a nutshell. Um, some of you might say, I'm not buying it for a second. Fantastic. Some of you are like, okay, that's me. Either way, if somebody comes in, they, and they're all millennial, here's what they're going to say. Jesus wins. Jesus is reigning now. Jesus is coming back. 
the church wins, the world will get worse. Everything is more spiritual than it is physical. That's what they're going to say. Okay? Not a reason to run them out with pitchforks, I hope. Hopefully we can still worship together. But that will be a lot of people who come from... Curtain Peggy. From kind of Presbyterian backgrounds. That's where they're going to be kind of heavy. If you have people from a Reformed Baptist background, they're going to be coming from that camp probably. Any last questions? If you want to go, you should stand in at the bus stop. Yeah, that's right. Either way, be ready. <laughs> right? Live our lives to the Lord and be ready and trust that He wins. Any last questions for tonight? Do not forget your papers for next week. We will try to finish post-millennialism, which if you thought this one was weird, you're really going to think that one's weird.